Hey. Nico. Hello, Manny. How's it going? Oh, you copied me with your stylish outfit. Nice. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I almost always wear a bow tie, so nice. this is not for me. Yeah, you're looking good too. Yeah, I'm at a conference right now in Vail, Colorado. Oh, you're in Vail, Colorado. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I just uh, yeah sneaked out of the presentation to uh, make this episode right now. <laughs> nice. Is this the Vail workshop? Uh, it's the scientific retreat uh, of uh, ASTCT and EBMT. It's about like um, now it's starting with basic research and translational research and genome editing, but also like graph versus leukemia effect, etc. And this okay. is meant to be like a future collaboration between the two big societies um, for trainees to get like on hands um, and really close connection to like translational and basic research, basically. Very nice. That's exciting. Yeah. 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 Not too far from where I where I am because I'm in Salt Lake City. Um, so, How far is that away? Probably like six, seven, seven, eight hours. I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. A drive. But it's really yeah. lovely. I really like it. It's a really nice place. But it's quite beautiful. Yeah, it's yeah. similar to to here. Like at the top of the mountains, there are snow. So if you want to hike up and and ski down, you can do that. But the lifts are closed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah do you ski? um i did as a child but um since then because i live in in germany in the north of um, germany in hamburg and if i want to get to any mountain where i could ski i would need to drive at least seven eight hours okay it's and a for a german it's quite a bit yeah <laughs> especially in germany yeah i agree yeah. in america it's fairly routine to drive that much but yeah um i feel you so is uh, who's going to join us? Is it Claire? Ah, uh, yeah, Claire wanted to join us, but um, she couldn't because she has some um, like occupation in her hospital right now. So I hope it's okay if you are stuck with me. That's perfectly uh, fine. <laughs> I'm perfectly okay with that. Um, but I definitely can say also in the name of Claire that we are really happy that you are joining us for our uh, little podcast. I know you're like used to more uh, to big, bigger podcasts, but um, yeah, that was just, um, we started this uh, small podcast last year for, um, yeah, basically transplant, but also cellular therapy trainees, um, but then usually try also to um, cover general aspects that are like important to to trainees but also to medical professionals and um therefore it's quite obvious that uh we need to have you on um and um yeah we are really happy that you that you're here and i would maybe just um like to start that you shortly introduce yourself a little bit um where you located you already started but how you got into hematology maybe in general what was the reason you chose this and then your pathway uh what influenced you of course so yeah my name is Mani Mohyuddin I am originally from Pakistan and that's where I did my initial schooling and that's where I did medical school from 
while in medical school, I did uh, some rotations as a visiting medical student in the US. And uh, that's what, that was my first exposure to the American healthcare system and American health education system. Um, and I really liked the, the, the quality of education. Um, so I pursued a residency here, which I did at the University of Kansas. I really am very passionate about medical education and about mentorship, about uh, you know educational opportunities for trainees. So I did a year as a chief resident um, after I finished residency. And then I did three years of Hemong fellowship that too at the University of Kansas. And then I moved to the University of Utah, um, Salt Lake City for my faculty job. I focus on multiple myeloma and other plasma cell dyscrasias. Um, and, and that's a topic where I do clinical research on as well. I think what drew me to oncology was um, just the quality of the patient interactions. So while as a med student, like even just as a med, while as a medical student, the relationships that I would form while on the oncology service with my patients and the relationships that I saw my attendings and the other members of the team form with their patients was just amazing. I hadn't seen anything like that in any other rotation. And I think that's what drew me to oncology, the ability to connect with patients and their families at a time when they're, they're, they're vulnerable and you can form these amazing, meaningful relationships with, with patients and their families. There's just no parallel to that. So that's what drew me to oncology. And I think multiple myeloma represents that, that, that spot in oncology where your patients, you know, they, nowadays they live for a, a long amount of time, hopefully, and you're able to form really good, deep connections with them. It's not like some other cancers where, unfortunately, the prognosis is really poor and you know, you're, they're not your patients for too long, or it's not like some other cancers where a short amount of, a short finite amount of treatment cures them, right? So these are your patients for a long period of time and you form really amazing connections with them. And that's what drew me to myeloma. Obviously it's a topic of um, a lot of excitement and there's a lot of, you know, new drugs that are coming and it's an exciting time to be in the field. And those are other reasons what led me to pursue myeloma um, as a field. So that's a little bit about me. Hmm. Yeah, I think we definitely will come to myeloma, as you may have guessed. Um, but uh, what I would like to focus on first, maybe, is what is your, because you, you said you're very, like, into and emotional about um, patient care, um, trainee focus. Um, what do you think are, at the moment, the most important skills you would like to see in trainees that are even maybe lacking or um, something that needs to change? What, what do you think? What, what is the main thing trainees need to know and, and understand? Yeah, that is such a good question. So I think that, you know, there's so much more to being a physician than, you know, knowing things, right? Like knowledge is something that can be fixed. Knowledge is something that inherently a lot of us are good at, right? Where if we've gotten this far, we can learn things and we can memorize things and we can understand concepts. I think one of the, the undervalued skills um, is, you know, having difficult conversations and communicating effectively with patients, communicating effectively with other members of the team. And I think that is like, ultimately, in my opinion, like, you know, what defines a good doctor, 
versus you know an, an, an average doctor is the quality of your communication skills with your patients and also with other members of the healthcare team. And that's honestly a lot tougher to teach than, um, you know, than knowledge. Uh, so that's one big area that I feel like, you know, and I think there's been some recognition and things are getting better, but teaching these soft skills, like teaching these, these skills on how to navigate these tough situations, have difficult conversations, that's a really important thing. I think another important thing is um, just like how to like critically analyze literature and you know, not be just susceptible to the onslaught of hype that we face. And I think that's another thing that we sort of lack in our in our education system, where um, you know, critical appraisal and being able to process all of the information that you're getting is something that is that is lacking. Because ultimately, you know, when I look back at at least my oncology training, like you're not going to be able to know you know, everything about every cancer, right? You're not going to know everything about every trial. But what you should try to learn is a framework by which you interpret these trials, by which you process the information getting to you, by which you deduce, is it really all that impactful or not? And I think that framework is something that's not emphasized throughout our medical education, and especially um, in, you know, specific like hematology, oncology fellowship training. Um, you know, I think one more thing that sort of close to my heart is the, the end of life. And I think that our medical education overall really fails us when it comes to navigating the end of life, recognizing the end of life, having those tough conversations with patients, uh, because it's a lot easier to just offer another option. Um, and that's what sort of we're, we're, we're groomed and trained to do that. But I think having those tough conversations about death is something that is not emphasized enough. So other people might give different answers, but those are three main themes that I felt my education in particular lacked and that I often see that education, um, that other people's education also, I think, sometimes lack, lacks as well. Yeah, I completely agree. I think um, especially the last point, uh, I would like to, to address a little bit later because I think that's personally for me a big topic in myeloma and um, how to talk to patients with their um, disease progress and disease course in general. Um, but and the one uh, at the first point, um, because maybe this is quite um, actual now for me, because I just noticed that in that conference, um, you made the connection between this clinical skills, but also immediately the combination to literature and to research skills and to be careful of hype and be careful of what you read and what you see. And I always notice that in scientific meetings that it's always the same for me is you want to talk to, to people and you want to present yourself and you want to smile and you want to get in contact. Um, and then this may be limiting the natural history of what you should look for because this is basically content. You look at first, you need to understand what is going on and not, and not who is doing it, right? And um, I want to, to connect this question because you basically came in, I think your course is quite special because I noticed that, that you're uh, getting more and more covering because you're coming from an outside perspective, let's say. You're not this established in the scientific community like two years or three years ago, if I may say so. Course, but your constant focus on content um, just drove 
some development, let's say, yeah, with with Aaron Goodman and and all all these all these guys. And I want uh, wanted to ask you what how what would you recommend to trainees that are like in this dilemma? Okay, I want to focus on my topic, but I also need to see where I'm going. Um, who I talk to, who I meet, who is my influence, who can mentor me, uh, who can uh, promote me. Uh, what would you say, um, what would you recommend to, to trainees? What should they focus first mainly on, on, on content and then go from there or? Yeah, so that's such a, such a great question. And I think there are many ways that I could answer this question. So when I look at my trainee experience um, as a first year fellow, I really struggled with all the, the death and the suffering that I saw and the limited magnitude of some of the interventions that we were offering. So as a, as a resident, I sort of bought into this hype, right? Like, because you hear things, right? There's so many new drugs being approved and outcomes for cancer are getting so much better. And, you know, there's so much money being spent. There's like a new publication every minute. Like you think that there's a lot of progress going on and there is progress. I don't deny that. But a lot of the progress is actually very marginal. And when I saw this firsthand, I really, really, really struggled with it. And I tried to like come up with a mental framework on, like what this problem is and you know what are the solutions to this problem and how we got to this problem so when i look back at oncology training i think the most important thing that you you should do is like develop a mental framework to sort of process all of the information and recognize recognize the problems right like it's not about learning every single trial like you know you'll eventually get there for the disease you sort of focus on um but there are two books that I sort of highly, highly recommend, and it helped frame my thinking. And then I'll get to the second part of your question as well about mentorship. But those two books were, so number one was uh, Malignant by, by Vinay Prasad, which identifies the problem, right? The problem of the current infrastructure in oncology and identifies some solutions. And it makes you a better reader of literature and, and critically appraising. The other book um, is The First Cell by Azra Raza, which identifies the problem, but it offers a very different solution. Uh, I don't want to spoil the book for people who haven't read it, but you know, it, it, the, the solutions offered in some ways are very different than what Vinay Prasad offers in his book. But navigating those two, like both of those books identify problems. And I think navigating those two different solutions has been a very important theme of, of how I think in oncology. So I would recommend, you know, as a fellow, um, when you're starting out, or even as a resident when you're starting out, or even as a medical student, like, you know, read books or um, talk with people that teach you how to think, right? Like, it's not just about memorizing new information, but it's about getting a framework on how to think. The other important thing is don't be afraid to ask for external mentorship. So you might be from an institution uh, that, um, you know, may not have, you know, big names in-house, right? Like, they may not have, like, the best... Um, you know, person for myeloma or, you know, the best person at appraising critical literature. Um, but sometimes the bold move of reaching out to somebody outside our institution can pay dividends. And like in my situation, like I, you know, I reached out to, to Vinay Prasad. I at one point reached out to some of the myeloma doctors from the Mayo Clinic and they helped out with, with the paper and helped develop my framework. 
Um, Aaron Goodman is somebody I've never met, but we've collaborated on so many projects together. And I've been able to do that to a lesser extent for other people as well. There's so many people who like I've never met or you know, I met a handful of times, but like I've mentored them to their first publication. Um, and I want to do that for more people. So I'm not, and I'm not the only one. So sometimes the 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 step of reaching out to somebody outside your institution um, can pay dividends. And I think that's something worth considering. And I want people to know like that I am accessible to the best of my ability and my time um, to, to provide that role. But I think that can play such a such a such a huge difference. Um, so learning how to think is, I think, one of the most important things. Uh, so you can navigate all of the information that's presented to you. And then seeking mentorship, not just at your institution, but reach out to somebody who, whose work you found interesting, who you think you might philosophically agree with. Um, so those, those were some of my thoughts. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I completely agree. I think this will happen uh, a little, uh, some, some time more during this talk. Um, because I just started um, like teaching in, in my, so I'm a second year medical uh, trainee, we call that in Germany. I think that's some kind of like a resident or something. And um, we had like now this teaching courses the last two weeks. And what I notice um, is, and I sometimes notice that also during scientific uh, scientific congresses is that as trainee you're sometimes a bit vulnerable to adapt or adopt behavior from established researchers who may do all the perfect work but may be a bit stuck in their universe or systematic thinking and I sometimes get like the cringe so I, I want to like wake them up and say you, you need to to offer Young, the younger generation something something controversial they need to start thinking they just don't need to follow what you do they need to question what you do you you want to question um themselves so what would you do uh, or what would you say to to trainees if they try to follow their mentor um how may because you, you said this mental framework what how do they accomplish that? Just reading or, um, yeah, because I think that's, it also depends where you are. Right? If, you're, if you're really um, influenced by one person, you're completely drawn to them and then you just follow them and don't totally. ask anything. Totally. So as you point out quite eloquently, you know, there is a lot of inertia, right? Like you will by default you will end up following the person that you trained under right it's going to take a very conscious effort to not just like to do not blindly accept whatever is being told to you um so i think as much as possible it's important to like embrace different viewpoints right and like i learned so much from people that i have very very different views from um, on social media and by specifically reading their papers um, so I think one of the, the most important things is to, if, so if you're on social media, right, uh, if, if you're on social media and you're interested in one disease, follow like a broad range of people who have very different opinions, whatever cancer there is, there is always controversy and there are always, you know, different opinions. Recognize that um, some conflict of interest 
you know, financial conflict of interest is largely, I would say, unavoidable, right? Like most people who are trialists have some conflict of interest, but also recognize that conflict of interest can definitely um, sway people's opinions, right? So do try to find um, people who might have less conflict of interest, who might offer some sort of an alternate viewpoint and try to read the papers that they read, um, the things that they say, you know, what they say on social media. And you might have to make a conscious effort to, to do that like outside your institution. One of the projects that we're sort of working on, um, so there's Bishal Gawali, who I have so much respect for, right? He's, um, he's an oncologist from Nepal originally, currently in Canada. So him, myself, Aaron Goodman, Christopher Booth, who's been like a you know an instrumental change in the field. He's mentored Bishal and many other people. So we're trying to like come up with this common sense oncology like revolution, right? Where we want people to sort of recognize that we're we're really deep in this like pit of you know surrogate outcomes and this pit of hype. And we're constantly reinforcing this, right? We're so much in that tunnel that we're, we're not even looking outside and recognizing that a lot of what we're doing is so marginal. And a lot of what we're doing is furthering the agenda of industry. And, you know, like by default, right? Like I'm not saying conflict of interest is necessarily a wrong thing, but if like, if your mentor accepts a lot of money from pharma for consulting and for speaking fees, you're not going to think of it as a wrong thing. You're not going to think, you're not even going to think twice. You're going to be drawn into that field. Right? So what we're trying to do is come up with this like framework where we can inspire trainees that maybe there's another path, right? Like you don't have to, you can do research, you can advocate, but it doesn't have to be on industry's terms. Right. And it doesn't have to, you know, be all about promoting the new drug. It can be about, you know, recognizing some of the problems in oncology and drawing attention to some of the hype and advocating for better outcomes and, and all of that. So we're trying to come up with this like platform where we can inspire trainees uh, to sort of think differently because the default path in oncology, in my opinion, is uh, you get drawn into this, right? This new drug with a three-week survival, uh, progression-free survival benefit is like celebrated as a next best thing. And if you ever talk with people outside of oncology, they mock us, right? Like they make fun of us. They're like, your field celebrates a three-week, you know, benefit as, as if it's like the next best thing. And I mean, it's true, right? It's true. We've gotten ourselves into this. Um, so we're trying to come up with this platform where we inspire trainees to think of a different path um, and that there's research opportunities in this path. It's a respectable path. There are big, you know, there are other people who think like you. Um, so even if you don't agree with us, I think that um, having some recognizable faces who advocate for, um, you know, common sense oncology, recognizing hype, advocating for better outcomes, uh, better endpoints um, is what we're trying to do. So, you know, the short answer to your question is um, try to like be exposed to many different mindsets, many different voices, whether that's on social media or whether that's uh, the type of people you interact with at conferences or the type of people that, that you read um, and recognize that, you know, conflict of interest, although sometimes unavoidable, can definitely affect people's opinions. There's a lot of research on that. Uh, yeah. I really, I really like this, this approach of, of common sense, because I think, especially for trainees, um, I still think the best of people, uh, of, of every human being. And I think everyone has this mindset where she or he like feels at, at first when she or he never thought of this 
some kind of trial or design or outcome or this even disease you have thoughts and you have questions and trainees are through that inertia from their uh, mentors from their heads of department they are drawn into like keeping their voices down not not just even ask this question and i had the first when i got the first contact with a myeloma patient from a friend of mine who has a general practice i was still a medical student and this patient didn't know what myeloma was but she had been treated for several years and I, I've, uh, I've not known much about myeloma, but my instant thought was that's not correct. That's not good. If the patient does not know what the tra trajectory is, that it is a cancer. Um, so <laughs> then um, I, I offered this um, like counseling to, to our university hospital here in, in Hamburg uh, with Professor Kroger, who transplant, who does still um, allogenic transplants but this was just a counseling she didn't proceed to it but after that conversation she knew what she had and she was completely relieved it was it was not that she was obviously she was destroyed because it it leads to death um but cancer never is easy but she was somehow she felt she understood what her life was about now and i think that's what uh, maybe you're you're aiming at to to yeah underscore that and then go from that instead of just dropping everything on this patient and then hope she or he will never recognize uh what the whole life is ahead of her or, or him totally yeah and no, i fully agree i've definitely seen um many patients who um, and, and, and maybe I don't want to assume that they weren't told, maybe they were told and they didn't process the information fully and because it's overwhelming, right? When you're first diagnosed with, with a cancer, you, you're told a lot of information you may not remember. But I think it's a lot easier to just prescribe the next option rather than um, have a really deep conversation about like where we're at right now and, um, and, and, and when what's left. I think you know, when I look at my training, sometimes um, some of the most meaningful things that I feel like I've done have been uh, preventing misery before before people die and guiding people to a peaceful end of life transition and helping families and, and patients and their families navigate the end of life. Like I look back and I think that's perhaps the most meaningful thing I, I, I do. Um, and I think especially like when I look back at like my ICU rotation in, in uh, residency, for example, right? Like there was like all, all that I remember now are people who were like going down this path of like misery and like a guaranteed, like miserable end of life. And I was like, okay, you know, it's time to recognize where we're at and it's time to sort of, you know, deal with these situations, the, the cards that we've been dealt and maybe the best solution is not to pursue more aggressive care. Those are the conversations that I remember now. And I felt like I did the most meaningful thing. And, you know, with myeloma, it's a very exciting time. And, um, you know, there are probably more and more people that we are going to be able to put in a really deep long-term remission and cure. But there are also situations where we're not going to be able to do that. And it's easy to just prescribe the next option, but it's more important to have a conversation of where we're at, what those options cost you in terms of quality of life, in terms of time away from your family. Um, and um, I think 
there's uh, these are things that they're probably I would argue even more important for some other cancers other than myeloma. Um, but these are conversations that we just don't um, mm. have all that often. We're not trained to have all that often. Um, so it's definitely a shortcoming of our education system. And I think even, and I've read books about this where culturally, right, I think it's, it's more than just our medical, medical education. I feel like um, our ancestors, right, like death was something that was very proximal to them, right? It was always like very close to them. It could happen anytime. Life was inherently unpredictable, right? Like you could be killed by, by a lot of factors. And now, um, thankfully, we've made a lot of progress that we're in our comfortable bubble and we like to not think about death, even though it's inevitable. So we, we can afford to be complacent, even when we're facing with, even when we know our patients are facing cancer, like it's still uncomfortable to think about death because of all of the progress we've made. So this, I've, I've, you know, I would argue that this is a relatively new phenomena. It hasn't been throughout our history, but I think we sort of do have to come to terms with it. And as, as a culture, be more accepting of the fact that everybody dies. Um, it will happen at some point and we should, try our best to make it a, a good one yeah. a good yeah death, completely yeah. completely agree and uh, maybe even doctors have a bigger responsibility for that because um sometimes i feel when i see colleagues um we talked with this last year with um aaron goodman uh, in our episode about that that for instance i never had a training in how to talk to people about death about about and and how to teach myself how to talk about death and um, now I see um, colleagues who just like uh, kind of improvise or imitate what they say yeah yeah you have um, this, this or that disease and I must tell you um, it's incurable you're going to die because of that and it sounds so unnatural and I'm sure these people just don't know how to do that And if they knew, they would do that better. And then we wouldn't like um, kind of uh, simulate the same insecurity to the patients. Because I think as a doctor, you have the responsibility to make the patient comfortable, to, to try everything to, to, like what you said, reduce misery, re reduce tragedy, reduce uh, pain. Um, yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, but let me ask a provocative question. Maybe it's it's maybe too much uh, to to answer in one sentence. But if you hear or think about myeloma, what is the most important thing that bugs you at the moment? That's uh, such a such a good question, and I don't even know how to answer that because there are many things that bug me. So. Um, so we made a lot of progress and we have a lot of options, all right? But unfortunately, um, our current landscape of trial design is uh, just incentivized to keep getting more options rather than um, focusing on how to best use these options that we have in a way that um, maximizes quality of life, um, in a way that um, improves healthcare costs, um, in a way that sort of, uh, you know, maximizes uh, the benefit that these drugs can give to us. So the entire field, and myeloma is just an example, it's throughout oncology, is dominated by, um, by how industry wants to run their trials, right? All trials, most trials are funded directly or indirectly by industry. 
even the cooperative group trials are are funded directly or indirectly by by industry so they just shape the narrative and as a result you know we keep getting these new options but strategic trials right how to best use these options we already have are severely severely lacking and that is a really like tragic shortcoming of our field that that really bothers me and um, you know, it's not, there's nothing that I, as a sole individual, can do to fix this. I can draw attention to the problem, um, but I think that the government needs to like really dramatically increase funding for clinical research. Right? If I think about what will really help our patients, it's like more funding for clinical research. Yes, the next druggable target will help our patients too. Right? But I think that we have a lot of targets, and the immediate like priority is sort of to how better understand the options that we already have and come up with some strategic trials um, to, to sort of fix that. Another issue I really, really struggle with is, um, you know, as our treatments are getting better and better, right, which is a good thing. It's a good problem to be in. I sometimes feel like in many ways, we're lowering the bar for new treatments. It's like so weird, right? You would think that as treatments get better, the bar should be higher for more for new treatments. But with a lot of our surrogate outcomes, uh, the bar is lower, right? The, the, you know, the, the argument is things are so good, it's gonna take so long. So, you know, we just have to find easy ways for these new drugs to, uh, to show whether they work or not. So we're in this really slippery, um, you don't even know what word to use, but we're, you know, basically approving, we'll, we'll probably approve new and new drugs and the actual benefit that they're gonna provide our patients is gonna be fairly unknown. And in America, for now, you'll get away with it, right? Because we spend a lot of money on healthcare, but other countries that have to sort of make tough decisions on what is funded and what isn't funded, like it's gonna be very difficult for them to make answers based on a surrogate of a surrogate endpoint, right? And the divide between how myeloma is treated in rich countries versus poor countries is gonna get even more and more. So today, you know, VRD is probably an acceptable standard, like throughout you know the world but in a few years when based on you know surrogate outcomes and our desire to push everything up front you know when we're treating myeloma up front with bispecifics um, or car t without knowing necessarily whether it provides you know better survival than other approaches there's going to be a big divide between how myeloma is practiced in america versus how it's practiced in africa where a lot of the myeloma burden is right it's more common in people of african descent so those are things that I really worry about that I want to draw attention to. Um, and um, I mean, there are many other things, but I don't want to bore you with, with a long answer about this, but those are some of the things that I really worry about. And um, I, you don't bothering me, by the, by the way. Um, I think as, as longer the answer, um, as better, because um, usually we are used to these, um, in my opinion, what you just said about this complex thinking about clinical, but also cost effectiveness. People also always want to like split these things. And that's, I think, brings us back to common sense because usually this is combined. This is a combined problem. A patient is not a clinical outcome and the price. It's always the combination where, what is the trajectory? What does the patient want? What can the clinic offer? Uh, what can society offer? I especially noticed that and um, I would be really, really interested and happy in, in joining you guys because um, here in Europe, I think one of the uh, most 
difficult challenges we will face is CAR T cell therapy, which uh, if it goes to a previous line to maybe even frontline, we won't be able to, uh, to offer that to everyone because our healthcare systems are not built for that. We cannot offer that. And even our, our colleagues from who live in Poland or, or Czech Republic who live like two, three hours away from me, they cannot offer that to patients. People travel to Germany for that. And I think that's not a healthy status at all. Yeah, uh, it is a very big problem. And uh, even in America, like it's well, well documented that you know, access to these therapies is, is determined by socioeconomic factors, by, you know, there, there's a lot of racial disparities in here. And these things will worsen as we move these, these drugs up front. Um, I think that, you know, industry is heavily incentivized to move all of their effective products, like up front, right? Like all of their active products up front. And I think that we should sort of, uh, you know, try to push back with better trial design, recognizing all of these downstream issues. But unfortunately, you know, we're all taught, like that's how we're taught by our mentors. That's the current thinking in our field, right? That the new thing is like the sexy thing and it's like what you want to do and you're bringing new and novel options to our patients. And, uh, you know, you're providing people like novel therapies earlier in their disease course, which we look at as inherently a good thing and I would argue that it's not necessarily inherently a good thing, that new is not necessarily better. Um, and that's, you know, you have to be responsible with what you bring up front and prove that it's actually better than, than what you have. You know, the example is um, the trial in myeloma called Carditude 5, which is for people who are not intended for early transplant, right? But those people, so the control arm is just, you know, velcid dexamethasone, but the intervention arm is velcid dexamethasone followed by Silta cell, which is a BCMA CAR-T. So, you know, this is like designed for quick regulatory approval without answering many of the important questions that need to be answered. And, you know, I would argue that if a patient is eligible for an for CAR-T, they're also eligible for an auto-transplant, right? So it's really diabolical to have a plan where you give people CAR-T, but you don't give them an auto and you power this for something like PFS, which doesn't really answer, you know, much of the important questions. Um, so, you know, this is designed for quick regulatory approval, but it doesn't answer many of the fundamental questions in our field. Um, and if you think ethically that your patient would benefit, if you believe that first PFS is very important, which most people do, then you shouldn't, you know, deprive people of a transplant as part of the control arm. But it's trials like these, right? Or, or other like, there's like a so many like, you know, single arm, you know, phase one trials where they're just like studying these new drugs up front. And um, some of them are important because it'll help you determine the dose for when you want to do a randomized study. But, you know, we look at these trials as inherently a good thing. Um, and, sometimes it, it isn't and there are a lot of other downstream issues that come along with this yeah you um, mentioned these two dimensions um, as i understood it correctly one is how do we measure success and the other one is how do we select patients uh, what do you think for for both dimensions should be changed or should be addressed more properly in the future so your first question was, how do we measure success, right? And I think that success, the benchmarks of success is that our patients live longer 
and our patients live better. And when it is not practical um, to get those answers in a quick time, then it's fine. You use surrogates, but you got to be mindful that surrogates have their shortcomings and those surrogates are not perfect. And that a lot of what we are fed about, the information we're fed about these surrogates and about the sequencing comes from industry and they have their own biases and financial you know, incentives. So at all points, what you should be considering is do, my, do our treatments, make our people live longer and live better. And if you don't know that, and a lot of the times you don't know that, and all you know is that it's a deeper response, you have to think about, does that deeper response translate to survival? Is it worth the extra cost? Is it worth the, the, the financial toxicity? And um, you have to be very honest with that to yourself and also with your patients. Um, so that's the very important part of like the, the first part of that question. Um, and you know, when you see the term benefit being used, in my opinion, benefit should only be used for overall survival or quality of life. You shouldn't use the term benefit or clinical benefit for response rate because it may or may not translate to an actual clinical benefit. So you have to be always be thinking about this. And that's how I always think about whatever paper I read, whatever news article I read, like, you know, what are they actually studying and are they actually measuring benefit or are they measuring a loose surrogate of benefit? So that's the answer to the first part of your question. Remind me again, sorry, what was the second part? It was um, patient selection. Right, right. So this is such a multifaceted problem in ecology um, that, so, you know, we're taught this, this mantra that we're taught is a clinical trial is always the best option for a patient with cancer, right? Like that's what, what I was taught. I'm sure that's what you heard as well. And that's what I came into fellowship with, but you'll realize that it is often not the case. Uh, and I, I don't mean, I mean, clinical trials are doing a lot of the progress, most of the progress you've done is because of clinical trials, right? So there are many well-designed clinical trials that have dramatically advanced care. Um, but I think that you, we have to sort of think a little bit more broadly than just a clinical trial is the best thing. For example, a patient at the end of their life who's like had acute myeloid leukemia and like progressed like four or five times, for example, sometimes a phase one clinical trial is not the best option for this particular patient, right? The best option is a serious goals of care conversation. And, um, and if they still want to do the phase one trial, of course, but sometimes the best answer for that particular patient is, you know, to just like make sure they don't suffer at the end of their lives. For a lot, for a lot of patients with myeloma in the United States, sometimes the control arm is inferior to what those patients would get outside of their, um, outside of a clinical trial. And we have to recognize that a lot of the trials are designed, and this is not just for myeloma, but a lot of the trials are designed for regulatory approval and they don't serve the patients in the control arm well. It's an easy target, right? You choose a weak control arm and you get a quick expedited regulatory approval. Maybe that's good for society as a whole, okay? Because you're getting a new effective drug and you, know, you don't want the drug to fail, but you have to be very honest with what that represents for the patient in front of you. For, some, for somebody who, who truly did not want a transplant at all, right? That example that I gave you of that Carditude 5 trial, I mean, you could argue it's probably not the worst trial for that patient, right? Like if they truly were very averse to a transplant, but they were open to a CAR T. But that is not the type of patient that that trial is sort of built for, right? Like they're trying to like get in healthy patients and 
and not give them a transplant and give them CAR-T instead. Um, so there are so many aspects to this question. And also when you think about the results of these clinical trials, they're just, they often don't apply to our patients, right? And this is a well-documented phenomena, the stringent inclusion and exclusion criteria, um, the type of patients enrolled, um, they just, you just don't get those results with, with our, um, you know, for our patients. Like the biggest hype nowadays in the last week or two in oncology and in, in myeloma has been this, you know, the a trial of isituximab, carfilzomib, dexamethasone, right? Where they say unprecedented three years survival. It's like, and it's, you know, I mean, for what it's worth, it's, it, it's a good outcome. But like that, I don't think that it is representative of the type of patients that we see, right? Like those who get well-cared Revlimid dex, who stay on Revlimid maintenance after a transplant, who are like Len refractory. You know, I don't think that those people will get such dramatic outcomes because a lot of the people on the this isotaximab trial that I mentioned were not refractory to lenalidomide. They were not, a lot of them were not refractory to the last line of therapy. So those are things that it's very difficult for me to have a conversation with my patient when I'm consenting them to tell them like how much, you know, benefit they're going to get because the trial doesn't represent the type of patient that I see in my clinic. So it's, uh, you know, oncology is, is so complicated, right? It's, and um, there's so many different aspects to consider. And sometimes a trial is not the best answer. And sometimes it is, but off, sometimes it isn't. And I think it's important to, to recognize that. And sometimes a trial might be a good option for a particular patient, but may not be good for the population as a whole. So, so many aspects to consider um, in, in that. Yeah. And the other thing that you just said is um, that we doctors influence patients with how we speak and how we talk about things. So just what you said about um, this um, CARTITUDE 5 study, um, you can push a patient to say, I don't want transplant if you like nudge these patients to where you want them to go, right? I don't I don't necessarily say that physicians are aware of that, but if we don't think about that critically, I think this will just happen. It's the same what the question that I have from the beginning of my um, med student um, pathway is that we are not having a direct conversation about what transplant eligibility means. We still don't have like a complete reservoir of definitions which patients do we include and then when we see tri trials that have the title for transplant ineligible patients and they are just older than 70 years or something and have some comorbidities okay uh, is that really so um, and then the other thing that you just said this these words these buzzwords like benefit and another um, word that I find completely irritating is promising We, we see promising results, promising trial, but a promise is a thing that you project into the future and then the future will hold you to that. Okay. But do we see that? I would, I would challenge this. Um, and this is, this bugs me a little bit that we uh, don't, and this also, we project that to trainees that they just take that for granted and say, yeah, this trial is promising. Yeah, so you know, unfortunately, the current ecosystem that we're in, the easiest way to academic success 
um, for clinicians is to sort of buy into what pharma is saying and sort of amplify that um, because you will get authorship, you will get credit, you will get money. Um, you know, if you work with industry and you, you know, you consult for them, you will get all the prestige, you know, you, even if a control arm is problematic, right? Like there are so many publications that result from, from that trial. So like the, you know, the trial of selinexer and myeloma, bortezomib, selinexer, dexamethasone versus bortezomib, dexamethasone, which recruited patients well after bortezomib, dexamethasone was known to be inferior, even to other two drug regimens, let alone three drug regimens. But like, this trial has, I, I was thinking about it the other day, it's generated such a wealth of publications. There's like a subset analysis for, you know, patients with poor cytogenetic risk. There's another subset analysis. There's, you know, there's just so many subset analyses that come out from this one trial. So it's easy to just buy into it, not push back on what they're writing, um, agree to their trials because you will profoundly like succeed in academia, right? So many of these publications that industry puts out have a big prominent name that's a first author, all right? Um, but it's very obvious that the project is written completely by industry. Um, it is very obvious that the what is being studied is, is outside the skill set of a clinician, right? If it's like a very complicated, you know, technical analysis, statistical analysis, like as a clinician, I'll be honest, I don't even know how to do it, right? So it's not something I did. It's not something I conceived. It's something industry did, but they wanted my, my endorsement. So I decided to be first author. There are so many papers that, that fall in that category. So the easiest path to academic success is actually buying into this, not pushing back against industry, being a spokesman for or spokeswoman for industry where you use the same terms. This is a novel therapy. We're bringing a novel option to our patients, unprecedented response, right? Promising results. You know, all of these are, are buzzwords um, that, that sell. People buy it. Our patients buy it, right? It, the entire infrastructure is is like is like that so all of these patient support groups they're also funded by industry and they don't talk they don't push back against against these issues so when you talk about these things when you like push back against hype you're uh, you're you're going against the current you are a minority and what we're trying to do hopefully is raise awareness amongst the young generation of oncologists that it's okay to be that minority that your voice counts and that hopefully we'll have some people you can look up to as mentors who can guide you in that direction. So you can sort of respectfully push back, respectfully advocate for, for better or for what you think better is. So it is a complex mess. And, um, you know, you brought up a really good point about it. It all depends on how you sell things to patients, right? Like you have so much power and patients are so vulnerable. Like you can present a particular concept in such a way that the patient's never going to accept to accept it. So for example, there's this trial that is combining, you know, Velcade Revlimid dexamethasone is the standard, right, for newly diagnosed myeloma. So there's a drug called Belantamab, which um, is normally currently given for people whose disease has relapsed four or five times, right? So it's being, it, it was being studied in the newly diagnosed setting, okay? So Velcade Revlimid dexamethasone plus Belantamab uh, so that was the trial. And um, one can inherently argue that a drug that has ocular toxicity, because belantamab affects um, your eyes quite a bit, 
most of the time it's reversible, but your visual acuity can drop. You can have dry eye. You need to see an ophthalmologist every month. These are big, big deal. This is a big thing, right? So one can argue that a drug like that shouldn't even be studied in the newly diagnosed setting when you already have so many options, right? If industry wants to study it, that's a different thing. But as if when you think of your own mom or father, like when they have so many other options and there's so many other options that could be studied, why would you want to study belantamab when newly diagnosed? So when I was a fellow, this trial was enrolling at the institution I was at, and I could not convince a single patient to, to enroll on it. I had multiple discussions, but I was honest with them, right? Like I would tell them that, you know, this would require extra ophthalmology visits and it can affect your vision. And, um, you know, in the alternative, you don't have to worry about your vision, right? I mean, steroids might cause some issues and Velcade might cause some styes, but, you know, you don't worry about your vision or being unable to drive. Um, and not a single person consented. And I tried multiple times and I told them potential, you know, what I think potential advantages might be of being on this trial. Um, so just because you can study something doesn't mean you should. And that unfortunately is a big problem in oncology because we are incentivized to run trials. Uh, it's again, right? It's like the easiest way, as I said, is to work with industry, agree to whatever they say. They come to you with an idea, do it. You come up with a new permutation of two or three drugs in a new setting. It's easy to come up with those ideas. You go to industry, they'll be yes. And that's the best, easiest way to academic success, right? But is it what's right for patients? Does it truly move our field forward? Does studying belantamab in newly diagnosed myeloma or as maintenance, does it really help our field? Like, would you want your own mother to be on it when there are other options? These are tough questions. And um, I think you know, you just, in my opinion, you have to push back against this, recognizing that you're probably hurting, you know, your long-term academic career, but hopefully there are alternatives. And that's what we want to tell people. There are, there is an alternative path to academic success. That's what I want, what we want to inspire in people. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm, I'm completely up for it um, because one thing that uh, bugs me also quite a bit in myeloma is that it's now even... Um, systematic reviews about certain conditions, about certain treatments are uh, written by medical writers. And there are like 20, 25 um, co-authors on it. And um, my simple question, I don't want like to confront people directly with that and say you're a bad person. But my question is just why? Why do you do that? Why don't you just write a, your own systematic review? Yeah, this is such a, it's such a, you know, such a good point that you raise. You can, so in my opinion, you know, we should all write all of our papers, but, you know, let's say we buy the argument that a clinical trial, you know, is very complicated and there's a lot of like requirements and all of us clinicians are busy. Okay. I, I mean, I don't agree with that, but let's say we buy that argument. Okay. Let's say clinical trial. It's okay if you write that, but like you should write your own review articles, right? Like there was this systematic review on extramedullary disease, which um, I saw that the first name and the last name both were big names. Okay, so when you see that, and it's a friend of mine who sort of told me to who, who made me recognize this phenomenon. He said, if you see that the first author and the last author both are big names, look in the middle. It's probably going to be some industry person who wrote the paper, and it was true. So I looked through this, and I was like, oh my god! Like even a review article. So even a response to, a, so you know, like if you publish a paper. 
and like you know somebody can write a letter to the editor asking the authors to clarify a few things right the response to that is like 400 500 words write that yourself even that is not written and i've gotten into trouble for pointing this out i got blocked on twitter i'm not going to name the, the people here but i got blocked on twitter because i asked you know and i didn't i didn't tag anybody i simply asked like we should be writing, you know, why can't we write like, you know, several hundred words ourselves, right? Like it's respect, it's showing respect to the person who asked a question of you, that you put in the time to write that yourself rather than delegating that to a medical writer. So, and then this, this other, I, I told you these examples of these highly complex, you know, cost effectiveness studies or which you can't do unless you have a lot of training in that area. And they're done by industry, but they'll have a first person, first author who's like a big name. So it's, it's really, really complicated, right? Like, um, and the easiest way is to say yes. Like if you want to be 20 years out and have like 600 publications, um, it's very tough to do that unless you're agreeing to some of these industry written papers. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that we hope to study. I know some very smart people who are like trying to study these phenomena, you know, in myeloma and um, raise awareness. But we're fighting against... Um, you know, people who have a lot more money and prestige than we do, right? Like there's only so many papers that I can write myself. And I have an inc incredible trainees who I work with who help write some of the papers and I mentor them. But like, we don't have like the infrastructure to, to counter all of this hype that we're, we're, we're selling. And if you look at the old, this wasn't the case always in myeloma, right? Like if you think of like, you know, Bart Bar Barlogi, who's like, you know, one of the biggest names in myeloma, like, I mean, his articles, his re review articles, his viewpoints were written by himself, right? He articulated his vision very clearly. So it's really, really sad that even systematic reviews, review articles are now being written by medical writers and how that's not seen as a bad thing. And if you draw attention to this, you get in trouble um, like I did. So it's, it's very, very problematic. Yeah, let's get into trouble together, <laughs> shall we? <That's> <laughs> um, maybe at the end um because i really like um what you're saying and and this reminds me basically on first principle principle thinking so why do we do this where sh where do we go from this um just basic questions and one of the basic questions we already alluded to is that we uh, when we talk about myeloma and other hematologic cancers we talk about death and you you said this is also very dear to you um what 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 is your opinion on that what should we do better um what do you do um in your clinic uh, especially to tackle this so you're asking about like the end of life yeah um, so that is that is a great question um so you know i had this young patient recently 35 year old um and you know, mother of two children, and she had very aggressive myeloma and um, had progressed through multiple lines of therapy. And she lived very far from the cancer center. And ultimately, you know, we tried. So we, so at first, like I was like, you know, how about we relocate you here for a few weeks? We'll get you know, some accommodation for you and we try to give you treatment and, you know, multi-agent chemo. She was a sort of patient who, you know, we have, and, and again, we have such a big waiting list for CAR-T, but these are, these are the sort of people whose disease never stays stable enough for five weeks for them to get to CAR-T, right? So that's another really tragic shortcoming. Like these are the people who need those treatments the most, but because of waiting list and because of the, 
waiting time, like she couldn't get to it. So we tried this multi-agent chemo regimen and that didn't work. And ultimately, like, you know, I sort of had these options. I, I had this like very honest conversation with her and like not a day passes by when I don't think about her, but, you know, I had this conversation where I was like, you know, I told her about, you know, Serenexer based regimens and how that's not a cure. And like, you know, the last few weeks, you'll probably feel a lot more nauseous and you'll, you know, lose some weight and your appetite will decrease. Um, and I told her, you know, the alternative is, you know, you're spending so much time away from your family, right? Like, you know, I, you're five, four, four hours away from where you live. And um, I think that, you know, you've, you've, you've tried really hard, you know, we've done all we could, it's not giving up, like, you know, you've, it's basically recognizing the situation that we're in. And I want you to spend as much time as possible with your family. And the more you come to see me, the more, um, time you're going to be spending away from your family and I don't want you throwing up and I don't want you losing weight and I don't want you feeling miserable at the end of your life so I sort of told her in a way that emphasized how the treatment I was going to offer would take away from her quality of life would take away from would be an opportunity cost for her in terms of losing time from her family and when I framed it like that um, she she understood. And I mean, it took multiple conversations, right? This is a really young person, right? Like you want to, I mean, and you know, ultimately, um, you know, she went and she passed away with her family, like surrounded by her children and her husband. And, you know, her, her husband is, was very appreciative of like how all of this played out and how she didn't die in the hospital and she didn't die like while on a very toxic treatment. So I think that it's very, very important to have conversations about the opportunity costs of our treatments, especially when we're approaching the end of life, about what our treatments take away in terms of time from family, in terms of how the last few weeks of life are going to, going to look like. And to be honest, when it's very tragic, right? But when you have a 35-year-old patient who's either not eligible or has, who's been refracted to a lot of other treatments, the treatments that are left behind, they, they are options, right? But we all know deep down inside that they're not curative options, right? So you have to come to terms with somebody who's 35, like they're not, unfortunately, you've tried your best, but they're not making it to, you know, full healthy lifespan, myeloma or whatever cancer they have has shaved off, you know, 40, 50 years of their life. Um, so the option that you're selling them is not going to get them there but it could make the last few weeks or months of their lives very miserable. And this includes phase one clinical trials as well. So I think having honest conversations with ourselves that just because we have an option um, doesn't mean that we should offer it. And taking time with our patients, teaching them about the opportunity cost, having these conversations again and again, because a one-time conversation is not gonna cut it, right? Like you have to create the right framework. You have to have them trust you enough um, and then I think of this other patient who had like really bad GI graft versus host disease um, when I was on, on the service. And she had, you know, once you're refractory to like the first several agents you use, right, steroids and, you know, two or three other immunosuppressive agents, the chances that another immunosuppressive agent is going to work is very low, right? This is like worse than a lot of cancers, like the life expectancy is measured in months, right? When you have refractory graft versus host disease, she'd been in the hospital for like months and I would come back on service every month and she'd look even worse. And all she wanted to do was just like, and we weren't letting her eat. And she just wanted to like go home and eat. And she wanted some validation from that. And um, 
you know and we let her do that and then she went home and she passed away briefly you know shortly afterward but she died on her terms and i think it was one of the most meaningful things that 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 we've done as physicians where you let people live and die on their own terms and just because you have options you don't subject it to them so i try to have very honest conversations even if it's uncomfortable and i try to have them repeatedly and i try to bring up the dimension of opportunity costs and time away from family and home with some of the treatment options that we have so that's how i approach it and i am not perfect at it i think that each conversation i have is hopefully better but it's a learning process there's no easy way to have these conversations um i just want to share this one story where i think of like you know how far i've come along i still have a long way to go but i was in the icu and there was this patient who was obviously declining right and uh, you know the fellow was like you know i think we should have a you know goals of care discussion and move him towards hospice i as a early resident as a trainee was fixated on this lactic acid and i was like but the lactic acid is going up like you know that that's worrying me and she was like listen he's dying like it, it's okay the lactic acid is going to go up like you don't have to check it like it's all right and and i i think of how like how far i've come along from that situation where i was the trainee who's like fixated on this lactic acid and now hopefully i'm 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 better at tackling like the end of life with my patients but it is it is the most meaningful thing you can do be honest with your patients don't you know just because you have options doesn't mean that those options are the right options for them and sometimes being with family at the end of their life um and making that comfortable is the most important thing you can do as a physician for somebody in their cancer journey yeah i completely agree i work um on a stem cell transplant unit and i just shared this this uh, came into my mind on friday i had to um talk about like transplant mds and there was this conversation okay what was the biggest influence of covid let's say for you and um i never recognized this but this dimension of family and time and like talks they could have had with them with their family in covid times especially now in transplant just this this blew my mind that how tragic that is that people like come into your clinic and they might never see their family again and um this was also um i think that that's what you also meant is yes when we talk about death we also need to talk to ourselves what we think of it and how we handle that because it's it's always easy to say what the patient wants is best but sometimes for instance in gvhd which is a really complex disease and really frustrating for patients patients not always know what they want and then you have this that's why i really like what you said you need to have several conversations with them that they together with you can come to an to a conclusion where everyone feels like shared experience uh, i i really i completely agree to that totally yeah Well, thank you for listening uh, to my experiences. I um, thank you for your time, and I think uh, what we uh, recognize is that all always comes to common sense thinking and to think about okay, what what do you think intuitively is the right approach, and how we, how can we come forward from that? I really completely agree, and I would be really really happy to join you guys from Europe. and to build a base uh for this project here and that uh we could maybe 
work on this together because I, I completely agree that this is what's lacking at the moment and especially trainees need to understand that better. Totally, we would love to have you on board. I think we um, just want to inspire trainees and we want to inspire people across the world and we want to have a diverse set of faces that people can identify with. And you know that includes women, it includes people from across the world, you know, different um, you know, ethnic minorities. We want to inspire people uh, to sort of think differently, recognize the issues in oncology, push back against the industry agenda, and um, you know, just make things better for our patients. That's that's our goal. Yeah. Manny, thank you so much. Um, yeah. Have a good day. <laughs> thanks. thanks for having me. The pleasure is absolutely mine. No, the pleasure was mine. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the day and hope to hopefully speak to you soon. Likewise. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. See you. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you.